St. Augustine, in his confessions that he wrote in the 5th century, uh, wrote this, How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? And many theologians over the ages have said the same kind of thing. To know God, we have to know ourselves. And really, when we know ourselves, we're getting to know God. Like There's this kind of, if we're made in his image, that makes sense. There's this connection here that we can't really know God in a deep way apart from knowing ourselves and vice versa. And this makes sense. If we're made in someone else's image, if we study that someone else more, we get a little bit of an idea of the image that we are. And if we understand ourselves more, we get a little bit more of a reflected view of who that someone else is. Now, this is all like well and good until it becomes a difficult thing. We're happy to think of our creativity and how that's a reflection of our creator God. That's a very kind of fun and real and lovable kind of thing about being a believer. But what about when it comes to being hurt, when it comes to being lonely? We don't want to dwell on them because that just makes us more hurt and more lonely. Like nobody really wants to do that. Our first reaction is to flee those emotions. We don't want to feel that way, so we run away. We don't want to be like that, so we run away. But as we've been saying in this series, as we flee these emotions, they get into areas they were never meant to be. And we add to that, we missing out on God, uh, we miss out on God by seeing him through the lens of our hurt, seeing him through the lens of our loneliness. If we don't feel that, if we flee from those feelings, we'll never understand who God is through our hurt, which is a different kind of aspect of God that exists out there. And when we flee our emotions, also, we relinquish our own control over them. If we're running away from them, we, it's not, it doesn't become um, a slave to us. It be, we become slaves to it. It becomes our master. And also, we end up with a really small view of God. Now, maybe you don't care about like knowing God, but I bet we all care about living a full whole life, one that we can honestly feel, one that's not overrun by our emotions, one that's emotional, but not kind of led by them, not slaves to them. On another level, though, what we get to do when looking inward is to learn more about the creator of the universe. I mean, what if your emotional life was about something more than you? Have you ever thought about that before? What if that was true? So today we're talking about being hurt and being lonely. And we all feel hurt, we all feel loneliness, and by ourselves, we will end up fleeing those emotions. Sadly, that only leads to more hurt and more loneliness. So we don't want to do that. We want to go down a path of wholeness. And wholeness has to be, if we are spiritual beings, wholeness has to have a spiritual um, aspect of that. And as Christians, we believe that God is a part of that. So we're going to learn today about how Jesus was hurt and lonely and how he didn't flee, and how that not only heals us of our own hurt, our own loneliness, but that allows these difficult things to be helpful pointers to our reality, to the need for deep intimacy in our lives and with other people and with God himself. So with God's words to us as our guide, we're going to look through these feelings and then um, see how Jesus went through them himself. Because say whatever you might about the suffering in this world, the pain we feel, we can't say that God didn't take his own medicine. Jesus experienced it himself. So let's talk about... Um, being hurt first. And we're going to stick around Psalm 22. We'll jump around Psalm 22 a bit. But generally, as I read that psalm, um, it really does put to words in a complex kind of way. What does it mean to feel by yourself? What does it mean to be kind of thrown away and discarded and people saying things and gloating over you when you're, when you're at your worst? See, hurt is the emotion that tells us that we have pain, that we have it. The feeling of hurt is like the nerve endings when we touch something really hot and we draw our hand back supposed to give us an idea that's not a good thing to do don't keep doing that because that'll be bad 
No matter your accomplishments, no matter the walls you've built around your heart, no matter your spiritual maturity or immaturity, we are all susceptible to hurt and we all find it difficult. We're all in the same boat together. And David, in writing this psalm, he's talking to God and he's also talking to God's people. It's kind of, these things are both going on at the same time. This type of psalm is called a lament. Uh, it's, it's, it's crying out to God in our hurt. There's an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. That's a great last name. I always thought he was like, you know, a hardcore kind of German scholar with like all these multiple languages. Turns out he's just from Georgia in America. And he has a very kind of, it's a drawling kind of accent, which is hilarious. Um, well, he wrote this about the uh, Lament Psalms. He says, the laments are refusals to settle for the way things are. They are acts of relentless hope that believes no situation falls out God's capacity for transformation no situation falls, out, falls outside of God's responsibility. So when we lament, we're bringing those emotions to God, saying, God, I know you can do something with this. You're not doing something with it now. Why not? Please do something with it. Laments are more than just about us being honest with ourselves and God, although that's a part of it. Like, I feel bad because blank. But they're really they're kind of like protests because it's a refusal to settle for how things are. It's not, you're not just saying, oh, I'm hurt. Mm, thanks, God. Please give me some more of that. You're just saying, I'm hurt and I don't want to be. God, won't you save it? So won't you save me? And it's, it's also uh, relinquishing our kind of pressure to have to have everything figured out ourselves and giving that to God. Now, the fact that these emotions, like the reality of feeling, is in the Bible, the Psalms, no less, teaches us that our emotions are part of how we worship God. Our emotions are part of how we worship God. So even though we're tempted to flee and we're tempted to run away, not only would that leave us incomplete, we also miss out on something greater, which is being able to worship God in all of life, a full orbs kind of thing, instead of just like a small little thing we might do for a couple hours on a Sunday. So, how can hurt be a good thing? How can the feeling of hurt be a good thing? It basically feels really bad. How can it possibly be good? Well, the feeling of hurt tells us something is wrong, tells us something is not right, Something is not how it ought to be. This is how the world should be, and I'm here. And there's like a massive disconnect. That's what the feeling of hurt is. It's a general kind of feeling. And that's what's going on here in Psalm 22. Uh, there's an ownership that David has over his emotions. He's not saying, no, I don't really feel that hurt. It's not really that bad. He's saying, no, I feel hurt. It's bad. It's difficult. He's owning his emotions. He's being responsible for the feelings that are there. Now, that's not to say that others like, don't cause hurt in our lives, because they do. But the responsibility over our own hearts is to admit that we are hurt. Being honest with that reality, because that's what it is, us entering into reality. Being honest with that reality in our lives can teach us how it means to be vulnerable. I mean, it's maybe not a, a cultural thing in our context here to talk about when we're hurt very openly with people. Like, it's not something we would do. I mean, Americans might be a little bit different in that. But the general kind of British vibe, especially in Manchester, it's like, oh, no, it's fine. Keep your head down. Keep going. But it really is a gospel reality. It's a gospel culture. It's a thing that people who follow God regularly practice when they talk about, yeah, life is difficult because of this. But hurt doesn't end there. It keeps on it, There's a, another ending. A willingness to surrender to pain begins healing. Now, being honest with hurt also teaches us how to guard our hearts well. If we refuse to hurt, we'll continue to make the same bad decisions over and over and over again because we're just going to keep on going that road. We won't be able to learn from it. Now, hurt's not a pleasant experience, but it can be a good thing. Or maybe I should say there, there are like good kind of benefits that can come from it. But we don't like to feel it, so we flee. And we've learned this about all the other emotions we've been talking about. Like, how do we flee the emotion of hurt? 
Thinking about feeling hurt leads to more feelings of hurt, and we don't like the way that is, so we try and do other stuff. First, here are some reasons of, of how a fleeing from that feeling can be damaging. First, a refusal to feel hurt is a refusal to enter into reality. You're not really dealing with how the world really is or how you really are. It's ignoring the way that things are. That's not what Dave is doing in Psalm 22. And in fact, if you read the other Psalms, you're like, man, this guy is dramatic. Like, he's just talking about how he's, he's, he's covered his sofa in tears. Like, really, David? Is that really how it was? I mean, is he just like super emo? Like, what's the deal? Well, David is not ignoring the way things are. He's talking about his feelings. And that leaves uh, little room for hope or for help if we don't talk about those feelings. If we aren't honest with our need, any rescue is going to be small. So that's the first one, a refusal to enter into reality. Secondly, refusing to feel hurt deadens our hearts. Think of like those nerve ending, that nerve ending idea again, and the, the idea of like physical pain when it hurts. If you were to say, oh, I don't want to feel the physical pain of burning my hand on like the hob or whatever, so I'm going to somehow find a way to deaden my feelings or on, on my fingertips, not only will you not feel the hurt of you know, burning your hand, you won't feel anything. And it's not like our, our uh, emotional lives are so compartmentalized where we're like, I will never feel, never feel hurt. And then you find a way to, to sever that kind of emotional connection. That means you're going to sever emotional connections everywhere because our heart is a very complex thing. It's interconnected. So you can't live a life that refuses to feel hurt and also enjoys all of life. It just doesn't work. To enjoy all of life, you have to enjoy all the emo- You have to experience all the emotions. A refusal to walk in pain will deaden all your emotions, not just the ones you don't want to feel. Now lastly, because we can't keep that river of emotions back, this is maybe a metaphor I've used a few times, if we feel like our emotions are a river and we have a dam to stop that river from like overtaking us, eventually, if we don't, if we don't let that out in, a, in, a, in an appropriate way, eventually it will spill over or it'll burst. And those feelings will end up in places where they never were meant to be. And you won't even know why you're feeling these feelings. You don't know why you're angry. You don't know why you're feeling hurt. You just are because you've been damming up all those emotions over a long period of time. And, we, and either with hurt, we either end up resenting others or harming others. That's how it works when we kind of hold that hurt back in our lives. Resentment is when someone asks you what's wrong and you say, oh, nothing. And it's obvious there's something really wrong it's an attempt to cut your heartstrings away from your experiences. And as the saying goes, hurt people hurt people. That's how it works. Uh, growing up, I had my share of old cars back in my day. I was trying to find a photo of my first car. I don't have an actual photo, but this is a 1984 Ford Ranger. I would say it's a beast of a vehicle, but it's not. It's really not. It kind of like, the, the petrol gauge didn't work. I ran out of petrol like on the side of the road multiple times and all sorts of things were kind of wrong with this vehicle but it was the first vehicle I got I bought it from my grandfather when I was 16 uh, and um, in our family we never really had the money to buy like super new cars like even now I've kind of continued that I think our car is like 18 years old 17 years old something like that but it's it's still trucking not like this truck though uh, also, ha- it's, it's, it, especially as a 16-year-old, it's less expensive to fix an old car than it is to buy a new one. And I didn't have the money to buy a new one, so I bought this one. But the thing is, with old cars, you have to really pay attention to the dashboard kind of warning lights, assor- assuming those come on, which that wasn't always true with this vehicle. But those warning lights, they tell you what's going on with the engine, what's going on under, under the bonnet that you can't see because you're in the driver's seat. And when you're the driver... You're going about your day. Everything might seem okay. Ah, the truck's working great. And then a warning light turns on. The engine's getting hot. 
Now, you can choose to not acknowledge that reality and keep going, and you will be able to keep going maybe you know, at the least for a few miles. Who knows how long you might be able to go? But eventually, ignoring those warning lights will lead to a breakdown. That's what will happen. And this is what our emotions are like. Dashboard warning lights telling us something is going on. And coming from someone who's been on the side of the road a few times, ignore those lights at your own peril. But the warning light doesn't tell you why something's wrong, it just tells you that something is wrong. To get the why, you have to go to an expert. Like you take the truck to the garage and the guy has to say, oh, it's because of this, this, and this, or whatever it was, or because you drove it when the engine, or when the lights were going off. And that's why we have the Bible. The Bible tells us what's going on here, especially this one particular psalm. David, in this psalm, is an expert about hurt. So why is he hurt? Well, he feels like God's left him. He feels that others have left him. He prays to God. He doesn't hear anything back. It's like praying to the ceiling. It just doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. He's not welcomed by others. He's mocked by others, not just for his situation, but also for his trust in God. He wants a closer relationship with God. He wants a closer relationship with other people. And David is writing this psalm down again, not just for himself, but for Israel, and of course for us today, because we're reading it today. So you can't deal with hurt on your own. There is a necessity of others in that process. It's a necessity of others in that healing process. It's only when we tell the truth about our hurt can we really begin to heal. And it's easier way easier to live life as a liar to be like oh, I'm not really that hurt and to kind of go on as this but you know you're just kind of lying to yourself but that's a much smaller much more shallow kind of life and a promise from God is in 2 Kings 20 verse 5 God says this he says I have heard your prayer and seen your tears I will heal you this is God speaking to his people I have heard your prayer God hears us he's seen your tears He's there with us. He's not somewhere else. He's there with you. And his promise is that he will heal us. Now, not being honest with our hurt means missing out on that healing process, on that rescue. And God's healing, 99% of the time, takes place in his community. It's how God has set up his church within the rest of the people. Now, you might have some more questions about this feeling of hurt, and you really should, because would we spend like maybe 15 minutes just talking about hurt? If you have any other questions or thoughts or anything that I said or that David says or just maybe that's going on in your life that you want to, um, us to talk a little bit more about, go to RedeemerMCR.com slash ask. Put the, the stuff in there. It's completely anonymous. I don't know. I just get an email from an... Um, there's no kind of... It doesn't even get your email address or anything. You can ask whatever you might be scared to ask other people, and we'll chat about it after the message. Um, Because I'd really love for us to learn from those questions. I think that's really helpful when we do that together. Um, Maybe some thoughts here. Uh, These could be maybe reflections on how you've been hurt in your own life. Remember, that's anonymous, so um, you feel free to to share if that's something you wouldn't share otherwise. Or maybe the question of, like, where are you tempted to go instead of feel hurt? Uh, or how have you seen God respond in your own hurt? Or the church respond in your own hurt? Maybe it's a positive kind of experience. Or it could be a neg- negative experience. Surely the church has hurt lots of people. All of us have probably been hurt by the church because the church is made up of fallible beings like ourselves. We're, we're not perfect. And so we end up hurting people. How has coming to grips with being hurt maybe been helpful for you? I would love to hear about that. We would love to hear about that. That's so whether you're online or with us here. Um, something to think about. So that's a little bit on hurt. Let's also talk about lonely, because the two are connected, especially in this psalm. 
Um, again, this is just like a litany of uplifting topics. Next week is um, anxiety, and then we get into all sorts of stuff. Although we will, the last one, we will end up in gladness. So it does, there is a positive moment, I promise, at the end. You have to wait nine weeks to get there. Um, so good on you for sticking through it. Okay, so loneliness. There's plenty about loneliness in the psalm as well. Uh, and we're, we'll get a look at it through the same kind of lens here. We're going to see what is loneliness, how, to, um, how it can be good, how we flee it, and what that leads to. So what is loneliness? Loneliness points to the deep need that we all have for intimacy, for deep human connection, close, deep relationships. Intimacy is knowing others and being known, like a two-way street. And the feeling of loneliness brings the reality of how God made us in his image, in his, which is three persons, so in his community-based image, as people ourselves. We are made to exist for community. When we fail to experience intimacy in our relationships, we feel lonely, and rightfully so, because we're, we're made to be in relationships. And look at verse 6 in Psalm 22. Um, I am I'm worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Uh, even in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's scorned and like despised by other humans. He also feels like God himself has forsaken him. He's forgotten him. The message translation on the, those first two verses of Psalm 22 is great. It says, God, God, my God, why did you drop me miles away from nowhere? Doubled up with pain, I call to God all the day long. No answer, nothing. I keep at it all night, tossing and turning. That's a horrible feeling, loneliness is. And in our individual obsessed West, we have suffered from loneliness for a very long time, and now it's multiplied by COVID and all the pandemic lockdown stuff. I mean, if someone like me, a male age 39, dies, most likely it's because I killed myself. Suicide would be the most likely reason that I, I would be dead. Now, just feeling lonely is part of a complex kind of situation, but I have to think that somehow our loneliness and our mental health epidemics are linked. But how can loneliness be good? It's obviously bad. I don't need to prove that. Like, we know that's bad. How can it be good? Well, loneliness can be good because, like hurt, it grounds us in the reality that we're made for people. We're made for other people, and we're also made for God. Loneliness tells us how important it is to live as a vulnerable, open family with each other. Now, ironically, being honest with our loneliness often leads to closer relationships with each other. Have you ever actually been honest with your loneliness to another person that you trust? Often that really deepens the relationship. But being honest with our loneliness is not something we really want to do because we're feeling lonely. Often from the group that we're feeling lonely from is not the same group we want to engage and say we're lonely. I mean, it, being okay with your loneliness, not giving into it, um, but understanding its reality in our life leads you to ask questions of other people like, can you just listen to me for a second here? Or will you pray for me about this very specific thing? Or can we just spend time together? I mean, that's an okay thing to ask. I mean, maybe not now because we can't really spend time together. Maybe can we just have a chat together or something like that. So many people, I think, are just afraid to ask that very simple question. Can we just spend time together? How simple is that? Now, we might experience maybe a bit of shame when we feel lonely, which is why I think we don't actually talk about it. If we think our loneliness is something that's wrong with us, maybe we're not going to share that about other people. Oh, I'm feeling lonely. I'm probably the only one who's feeling like that, and I don't want to put that on someone else. And then we kind of end up in our own little cocoon. That's not stepping into loneliness. That's an attempt to avoid it. We can also avoid loneliness by becoming apathetic. 
And actually, if we're lonely for a long time, it just will eventually crystallize into an apathy. If we don't process our loneliness with God and with other people, we become apathetic. We become dead inside. Now again, we don't often go to community when we're lonely because it might feel like we're feeling lonely from that very community. But if we refuse to do that, that doesn't change anything and that just leads to more loneliness. So if we are feeling lonely, what are we doing about it? Also, how many times have I heard this lame excuse, I don't want to come across needy? You are. We all are. I am. Everyone in this place is needy. Everyone listening to this thing is needy. Whoever comes across this, you know, decades from now, online and some like, remember that, that website, YouTube? Yeah, and they pull it up. And there's this thing. You're needy. Every single person is needy. We all know that. Let's stop pretending that we aren't. And you may not be okay with that, but that's okay. You can grow and be okay with that eventually. So why not bring your true self to community? Doing anything less will make you feel more lonely. You might be saying, oh yeah, I'm kind of involved in, commu- in community, but you're not really who you really are because we're afraid that people are going to judge us or whatever. Doing anything less will make you feel more lonely even if you do show up to that missional community or core group or whatever because you're not really bringing your true self. Now, we've all been a little bit more alone than normal, right? All of us, every single one of us. Uh, but being alone doesn't have to equal lonely. Those are two different things. We can be physically alone and or uh, feel that emotion of loneliness. Sometimes one leads to another, but it doesn't have to. But when you have been lonely, how have you dealt with it? Are you able to bring that to others? Are you able to talk to God about it? Do you talk to God about it? Has it driven you to read more or less of his word? Has it driven you to pray more about it or less? With more honesty or less honesty? I um, think this is a, to me, this is like a fascinating kind of question because it shows us really who we are. What stops you from bringing your loneliness to others? Just take like a second, and if you have a phone or whatever, anyone in here online, if you could go to that site, just, if you just want to put something on there, I'll wait a second. I'm going to take a sip of water and stare at you guys. Um, go to redeemermcr.com slash ask. And just say, what stops you from bringing your loneliness to others? I think it might be helpful for me to just read it out, however many we get, and be like, oh yeah, actually, we all feel the same way. So just, yeah, take a second and put what might be stopping you from bringing your loneliness to other people. There's a quote from uh, Chip Dodd, who wrote a book on uh, our emotions. It says this, A lot of us make sure we live intense lives to keep from facing our hunger for intimacy. A lot of us make sure we live intense lives to keep us from facing our hunger for intimacy. Many high achievers are desperately lonely because we're trying to do a lot of things to make up for something that just won't ever make up for. And if you're a high achiever, like myself, you might be ashamed to admit that. Like, oh yeah, I do feel lonely a lot of times. But remember the dashboard lights. When they go off, it's not helpful to cover them with gaffer tape. It's not helpful to kind of like, you know, try and drive without looking at them, put your hand over them. Like, that's not really going to do anything worth anything. It doesn't deal with the situation. It just makes a bad situation worse. So what do we do with our loneliness? Well, it might be helpful to think of this in terms of demand and expectation. If, we, if we're letting that reality of loneliness sink in a bit, the terms of demand and expectation, when you have a difficult feeling like being hurt, 
like loneliness, we can demand that it get removed quickly, as if it's like some kind of problem to solve. What this does is require others to come through for us in the way that we want them to, kind of forcing them to. It's not about love, it's about power. It's about forcing someone to be a certain way, to say a certain thing. Demanding people expose a distrustful, wounded heart. The other thing we can do, which is what David does in this entire psalm, Psalm 22, and even the very fact that he's writing this down, praying to God, the other thing we can do is to live in expectation, to live in hope, and yet be willing to hear no, and yet be willing to be let down, because we will be let down. To live in expectation means you tell the truth of your own emotions and be vulnerable with other people. Sometimes others are going to come through for us, sometimes they're going to let us down. To live this way in expectation means we must... We must have hope in something bigger than ourselves. We have to have a hope in God to always deliver us, for that to be the bedrock of our hope, for him to rescue us and not leave us where we are. And this requires us to be with God in our loneliness. We feel like we're alone, but we're not because God is always there. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Even one of the songs we're going to sing has, has the thing, this reality of being with God actually changes us. And we're never truly alone. So how can we be with God? We listen to his words, we talk back to him, and we ask him to work. It's a very simple thing. Like we get to, Anytime we open this up, we get to hear God's words to us. And then we get to speak to him, and he hears us, just like uh, two king, uh, that verse in Kings brought up. Now, lest we think that we are the only ones to feel this emotion or to feel these emotions. I'm the only one who really feels hurt in my way. I'm the only one who feels lonely, which is what we're all tempted to believe when we're in those difficulties. Um, Let's remember and look at how Jesus himself was hurt and lonely. How did Jesus experience hurt in his life? How did he experience loneliness when he was on the earth? When reading the Psalms, uh, one of the best things to, to do as far as like understanding how to read the Psalms, first to realize It's a book for you, but it's not really about you first. I mean, it is, but not really first. It's about God. It's about Jesus. And so if that's true, we can put these words of the Psalms on Jesus' lips. In fact, Jesus does that for us, because when he's on the cross, he cries out that first verse of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's doing the work for us there. Jesus experienced hurt, and he's pointing us to this psalm. He quoted this psalm for a reason, not just randomly, but because he wanted us to go to this psalm when we feel hurt like he was, and we feel lonely like he was. He experienced hurt. He experienced loneliness. Jesus was not demanding, and sometimes that made the feelings worse. He didn't live by himself. He shared his life with lots of other people, plus especially the 12 disciples, and even within that there was like a special group of three. They didn't always understand him or get him. In fact, they kind of rarely did. And yet Jesus continued to be vulnerable with them. When Jesus was being publicly tortured, he was brought outside the city. He was brought outside comfortable homes, outside the marketplace where you can go and buy the thing that you need. He was outside the, the nice shops, the open marketplaces. That was not a place for Jesus. Jesus was an outsider. He was not meant to be in the city. He had to be brought outside the city. He was meant to be outside. He came to heal, and he did. And his price to pay for that was being outcasted himself. Where were his followers in his time of need? They couldn't even stay awake to pray. The shepherd was struck, and the sheep were scattered. 
So being lonely is nothing new for Jesus. Nothing new. He knew loneliness, and he was always able to go to the Father. He would often get away and uh, fast or, or pray to God by himself. But not on the cross, though, was different. Not now. Because the Father, instead of being a loving presence, is now a judging weight, pouring all of our brokenness, all our sin, all the hurt that we've built up are for ourselves on Him, pouring all the loneliness we've rightly caused ourselves on Him. And He was crushed. This world is full of hurt and pain, yes. And nobody knows that better than Jesus. See, you and I experience like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what Jesus experienced. And not just the physical suffering, which is difficult, but it was nothing unlike the physical or the, the spiritual suffering, the relational suffering between father and son. But our fraction of a fraction of a fraction is more than enough to be overwhelming. We don't need any more. We have enough. It's more than enough to be overwhelming. And how in the world could that have been good? See, Jesus took on the full weight. And because of what Jesus did, 2 Kings 25 can be true. Jesus made it come true. So through Jesus' work, God can say, I have heard your prayer, I've seen your tears, and I will heal you. Because of what Jesus did, he made Psalm 1611 come true. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. If Jesus didn't do that, that wouldn't be true. See, Jesus didn't flee, and that is really good news for us. Really good news for us. Jesus willingly walks into our hurt and loneliness for our good. He's not outside of our pain. He's there, and he knows what it's like. He's also not outside of our difficult circumstances. He is right there with us. When Jesus told us, I will never leave you or forsake you, he meant it. He wasn't just saying, wouldn't this be great if I could leave you and never forsake you? Well, I'll try. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He meant it. He wasn't lying. In all your experiences, Jesus has been present and will be present. In all your hurt, he knows, he sees. In all your loneliness, he is with you. Because of Jesus, making everything sad became untrue. He not only heals us, he transforms us. We are healed in part now, but in full later on. And more than that, through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, we are now transformed right now as we're sitting here listening to these words from God. So when we experience hurt, we can see and understand Jesus in a different way because he's felt this before. We wouldn't know what it would be like for to, a, a God to experience hurt unless we kind of bring our own hurt there. And he has victory over it. When we experience loneliness, we can see and understand Jesus in a different way as well. He has been here before and is with us now in it all. And if God is for us, who can truly be against us? When we're tempted to flee our hurt, pretend it's not there, go towards resentment or even harm other people, we have Jesus gently guiding us off of our own path and gently plopping us down on his way. When we're tempted to flee our loneliness, to demand others to come through for us, or to grow cold and kind of apathetic and be like, ah, whatever, it doesn't matter. Jesus is there gently guiding us off of our little path and putting us on his way. He heals us and he transforms us. And through the power of his spirit, the Holy Spirit, we can surrender to his ongoing work in our lives. The way that God works in that often is through community. Healing is a community project. 
change is a community project. And community is more than like an hour-long meeting on Sunday. Though obviously it's important, we set the vision of what our weeks can look like. But this is why Redeemer is set up the way it is. And here's a bit of a um, uh, thing of what, how is Redeemer set up? Well, we're set up in what we call missional communities, which are groups of people, 10-ish, a little bit less, a little bit more, depending, people living out what it means to be a gospel-formed family on mission together. These people are dedicated to each other, dedicated to God, and dedicated to the mission they believe God's called them to do so that people might know Jesus. And Sundays, what we're doing here is where everyone kind of gets together to be able to celebrate the joy of being in Jesus together, as well as create open spaces for more people to join in and see what church can be like. But within missional communities, all those little tiny, tiny circles, we have what we call core groups. And we haven't really pushed hard into core groups because we don't want to like overstructure everybody's life. But this is a thing that exists, and if you want to be a part of it, this is what they're like. Core groups are small groups of people, like two to four people, same gender, going deeper in life and application together. Ideally, everyone who's in a missional community would be in some kind of core group together. And core groups are very kind of informal. We haven't been like, here's how to do one, or here's what training looks like for one. Um, though maybe we will in the future, we're just kind of not at that part yet. Core groups ought to interact together often. Like, it doesn't mean you have to all meet together, you know, and sort out the times and all things like that. It can just be messages to each other. It can just be telling them, I'm praying for you about this. What, how else can I pray? Or following up, oh, I prayed. How did it go? That kind of stuff. It's just a normal kind of ongoing thing of life. And it's an environment where you can really walk together in that faith, in, in our faith together. Now, if the core group thing, I cannot think of a better book. I'm always peddling books. I cannot think of a better book um, as to what, it, what a core group can look like than this book by Vaughn Roberts called True Friendship. It's a very short book, less than 100 pages, 90-something pages, and it's about basically what does it mean to live in faith together as people who care for each other ongoing um, in normal life. It's a, and what it should be is a mix of formal and informal times. So there are, just like a family, there might be formal times. We eat dinner together at this time. But also informal times where we're ha- hanging out and doing Lego or whatever the thing you, know, you might do. Um, same thing with the church family. Like we should have formal times. So we get together on Sundays. We learn together. Or missional communities have certain times or whatever. But there should be also like a level of informality too because we actually want to be involved in each other's lives. We might actually even like each other, which is crazy. I don't know. So if you don't have people you're honestly walking with in your faith, and you will never be able to be aware of your own emotions, let alone process them, let alone see God through them. Spiritual friendship, true as the stuff like in this book, is more than just kind of being pals with somebody. Uh, though that's great. Uh, you might become friends with people in your core group, and that would be ideal, but it doesn't have to work that way. But it's to have fellow people, fellow other humans, walking with you, in the trenches with you, knowing that they have your back, day in and day out if needed to, pointing you to Jesus. That's, that's really what we all need. So if you want to grow more in that, that book is a good resource. Um, and if you read this book, don't just read it. Um, follow through with it together and ask the Holy Spirit, what does he want you to do? You won't be able to do all of it. Um, you'll be like, well, what next? And he'll tell you. It's, that's, a, that's a scary thing to ask. The Holy Spirit, what do I do next? Because it leads to crazy things like moving to another country. Believe me. So, this is how the cross directly connects with us today. As we bring our hurt and lonely selves to Jesus, there is an implicit surrender. It basically is saying, I am not enough as I am. 
and we don't need to be. We get to be who we, were, who we are created to be, and Jesus gets to be enough.